The show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Patients, docs, nurses, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we've tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Digital health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status, no. Yeah, this is the healthcare wrap. Y'all, come on, let's go. New choices, new platforms, new care models. In the healthcare of tomorrow, consumers win. But who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? We're here to answer those questions with some provocative thinking about how to create the healthcare that people actually want. Ready to roll up your sleeves, look at the world a little differently, and explore the frontiers of consumer health together? Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Welcome back. I'm Jared Johnson, ready to share some more provocative thinking about building the healthcare of tomorrow. If you're just now joining us, we hope you'll follow us and check out our previous episodes, all 200 of them. We're in season seven, where we're writing the consumer health playbook and answering the questions, who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? Let us know what you think about this episode and what topics you're dying to hear about in future episodes by reaching out on LinkedIn or Twitter at Healthcare Wrap. So here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about a false dichotomy that's holding us back. Advocating for consumer choice doesn't necessarily mean that we're anti-provider. So who should we root for as more retailers enter the space? I'll talk about that. Then Ann Summers-Hogg is in the house to share some provocative thinking about improving affordability and accessibility from the consumer's view. Ann Summers is a senior research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and she's going to dive deep into an essential strategic choice that established health systems are facing. This may seem like a time to hunker down and protect the fort. So why is now actually the time to take a risk? Let's find out. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. If consumers win in the healthcare of tomorrow, that doesn't mean that providers have to lose. The notion of winners and losers is a false dichotomy and a premise that's holding us back. This is based on two other falsehoods that are limiting the pace of progress, the ideas of scarcity and tribalism, the twin fallacies that tell us that if you advocate for patients, you're speaking out against doctors, and vice versa. If you're for us, you must be against them. I was speaking with a colleague this week whom I know well, whose ideas about making healthcare consumer first really resonate with me. He told me that if he isn't careful with what he says, and how he says it, some people can tend to think that he's anti-doctor, when in reality what he's trying to do is help everyone understand how consumers make decisions, which ultimately leads them to seek more care. My remark back to him is that I'm sure some people have listened to this podcast and wondered if I'm anti-hospital or anti-health system. So let me clear the air. I'm rooting for better health care for consumers. Period. I'm rooting for health system digital business and marketing leaders to see the opportunities to make a better product. I'm rooting for you to avoid short-sighted decisions in the present that will affect your ability to offer something better in the future. I also believe that underestimating the impact of retailers on the healthcare market is a strategic error. I believe choosing to ignore them based on their current market positions is like record companies ignoring iTunes and Spotify, or Borders looking at Amazon, or Blockbuster ignoring everybody. That blip on the radar is going to grow. Health systems can lean into what retail brands are doing right and improve on their best parts. They don't have to blow up everything to become consumer first. Demanding faster progress and providing a path to do it doesn't mean that we're disrespecting the traditions and successes of medicine. It means we're building on them and evolving them for a world that looks a lot different than it used to. So again, let me make it clear. 
I'm rooting for every player that makes healthcare easier, more convenient, less scary, and less expensive. If that's a health system, great. If that's Walgreens or Best Buy or Dollar General, I'm on board. So far, the ones that I see making the most progress with this everyone-can-win mindset are human-centered design practitioners. They're trained in the art of using an and rather than an or. I think we all benefit when human-centered design becomes more mainstream as part of the culture of healthcare organizations. And to make that happen, we need to talk a lot more about consumer-first health. In my opinion, it shouldn't just be a chapter in the playbook. It should be the whole book. Why do I care so much? Years ago, my father-in-law passed away from a very curable form of cancer because they didn't catch it until it had metastasized. And I don't blame him. For him, seeing the doctor was too confusing, costly, inconvenient, and unhelpful. I blame a system that provides such an undesirable experience that people would rather avoid it, even at the risk of their own life. So I'm rooting for whoever gets us to a better place the fastest. The answers are staring us right in the face. It's time to root for progress wherever it comes from, and we have to start talking about this a lot more. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the week. The flow, the flow, the flow. Okay, let's get into the flow. Ann Summers Hogg is in the house. Ann Summers is a senior research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. She's going to share some provocative thinking about affordability and accessibility, not necessarily just from the industry's point of view, because we've heard plenty of that. We're going to hear it from the consumer's point of view. We're going to dive deep into the benefits and challenges of disrupting ourselves today in order to better position ourselves for tomorrow. So Ann Summers, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap. Thank you so much for having me, Jared. I'm really excited about the conversation. Oh, I'm excited too. Uh, Tell me first and foremost, what did I miss in your bio? Like, What else would you like our listeners to know about you and your background? Oh, I think you gave a, a pretty good overview of where I am right now. As you mentioned, I'm the Senior Research Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. And for folks who don't know, we are a think tank dedicated to improving the world through disruptive innovation. We are nonprofit, nonpartisan, and we focus our research on three verticals, healthcare, which I lead, education, and global prosperity. And before joining the Institute, I did come from industry. So I spent the eight years before joining the Institute at Atrium Health, working in innovation and strategy. Then before that, I worked in management consulting for Oliver Wyman, primarily on payer strategy and how to help payers move to value-based care strategies. So really excited about the conversation today and hopefully can pull on all different components of my background. For sure. I'm curious, uh, particularly about being a senior research fellow, what does what does that role involve? That's a great question. I lead our healthcare research at the Institute. And this year, we are focusing our efforts around drivers of health or what the industry historically refers to as social determinants of health. And we're doing a really broad brush of the landscape where we look across all different types of healthcare actors to identify the high performers who are able to address drivers of health or social determinants of health in order to really improve people's quality of life. And ideally, they're doing it in a sustainable, a financially sustainable way. So your listeners may be familiar with the concept of social determinants of health and know that since the passing of the ACA, there's been a lot of activity around social determinants of health or drivers of health. But as an industry, we haven't necessarily seen a lot of progress. 
So our research is seeking to identify those positive deviants, those bright spots out there who aren't just addressing drivers of health, but are truly moving the needle. So I guess I'm always kind of drawn to new approaches to solving these big challenges. And, and it definitely sounds like that is that is where you are living every day. Uh, <laughs> and you mentioned the term disruptive innovation. I've heard from various sides of the industry that those words, disruption and innovation, and, and I'd even add transformation to that. Sometimes those words can be a little intimidating or depending on the, the leader of the organization, sometimes that either they're attracted to that, they're interested in that, and sometimes it scares them away. Have you seen that in terms of like a difference of how you even describe the types of changes you're trying to help them do? I believe Clay Christensen actually said after the term disruptive innovation had been around for a while that if he had the opportunity, he would have named it something different. And having lived through the experience within an incumbent healthcare organization and seeking to not only teach the tenets of disruptive innovation and innovation generally, yes, people do oftentimes find it off-putting or confusing. And in that way, I think maybe the term doesn't serve us well. However, the concept when understood and applied is impeccable. The power of disruptive innovation to create change cannot be overlooked. I appreciate that perspective on that. And I appreciate you letting me go there because it's just something that's recently come up as I've had other conversations with folks. Could I actually, what do you hear from folks in terms of what specifically is confusing or do they wish was different? So I've heard from, from the human centered design side, from consultants that their work involves very clearly disrupting your existing business model And they have worked with incumbent health systems in the last six to 12 months. They have been told, yeah, we're not really interested in that. But then when they come back to the same leaders and describe it as something else to say, like, we're we're trying to help you find it, you know, a profitable path to address the new healthcare consumer. And they don't use the word disruption. They have had a better response. So I just found it really interesting. Yeah. And I think that goes to show the power of language and. As an incumbent, the concept of disruption can be off-putting and intimidating, quite frankly. So I think a lot of it is in how you use the language and also the framing of what the theory or methodology in terms of human-centered design, the value that it provides to the organization as a whole. Yeah, that's definitely what I've seen as well. So interesting. It was surprising when I heard that conversation because I use the terms a lot. And I use them intentionally, the terms disruption and innovation. And I think kind of related to that really is this fact when we talk about like really where do health systems need to go? Where do all healthcare organizations go from here? There are actually a couple of posts that you've put out recently that I'd love to dive into a little bit because you were talking about affordability and accessibility for healthcare. You're talking about social determinants of health. And you wrote a couple of pieces, a two-part series. It's called To Improve Individual Lives, A Top-Down Approach Won't Work. Do you want to dive into that a little bit and kind of what the premise was and, and, and what the uh, the background was behind these pieces? Definitely. And I think at a, at a high level, it gets back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about the power of language. So in the healthcare industry, we've settled on this term, social determinants of health, to really refer to societal population level structures that impact people's health outcomes. But when we actually talk to patients about the difficulties that they face, we aren't even really addressing 
those population level structures. We're really talking to them about their risk factors as it relates to those determinants of health. And risks in and of themselves don't give us all the information that we need in order to really help people address the problems that they face in the context of their lives. So what I posit in the article is that we really need to be asking about individuals' jobs to be done. And if your listeners aren't familiar with the concept of jobs to be done, effectively, what it explains is that as consumers, we don't just decide to use products and services. We actually hire products and services in our lives to achieve progress that we are desiring. And to really understand someone's job to be done, we have to understand the context in which they exist, as well as the progress that they are seeking. And our existing healthcare system and the way that many patient provider interactions are set up to occur, they don't really allow for this level of listening and understanding that's required to understand somebody's job to be done or the progress that they're seeing in a given situation. And if we don't really understand what people desire and the context in which they're living, we can't address the root cause of their health issues. We can't address the root cause of health inequity. We can't address the disparities that are rampant across our nation and in our health system. So really the premise of what I was arguing is we really can't take a, a one size fits all and think through this lens of population level structures and just ask about risk factors. What we really need to do is try to get to the level of the individual and understand the individual so that we can address their jobs to be done. Stay tuned for more provocative thinking after the break. Hey, listen up, y'all. Did you know that nearly 60% of people wish their healthcare provider sent them more relevant health information? And 42% would even consider switching to a different provider that sent them more, according to a recent survey of patients in the U.S. The vast majority of them would prefer to get that information via email or text. Persado is a natural language AI company that provides healthcare organizations with pre-developed, pre-optimized messaging journeys proven to build digital relationships, improve health goals, and increase patient retention. Deliver better health outcomes and revenue growth with Persado's data-driven content that inspires action. Visit persado.com to learn more. That's persado, P-E-R-S-A-D-O.com to find out how Persado can help. Justin Knott here with the Patient Convert Podcast, your weekly dose of healthcare marketing growth strategies, co-hosted by Justin and Kelly Knott. This is perfect for physicians, practice owners, healthcare entrepreneurs, and healthcare executives. We are breaking down what practices and healthcare organizations should be doing to grow, reach, and retain patients. There's so much confusion and so many options out there around what you should be focusing on to grow your practice, and we're breaking down each week what really works. 
We're bringing real-world application, case studies, and interviews from leading growth-minded physicians and healthcare executives. So catch us weekly on your favorite listening platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Okay, back to the flow. There's so much I like about this perspective, seeing things from a different lens. In fact, you use that terminology in in these posts. You talk about changing the lens to incorporate the individual's perspective. In particular, there's one phrase in in the first post where you, you talk about changing the lens by building new business models that uncover the progress that individuals seek. Can we go there for a moment in terms of uh, how does this relate to building a new business model? So it's one thing to see this problem from a different perspective, through a different lens, but then this is leading to some action instead of just stopping at the, yeah, there's a problem here. One thing I really liked about these articles was how solution and action oriented it was. You talk about building new business models. What was the premise behind that? Sure. So I mentioned that while there's this need to understand and to truly listen to patients, that's not how the typical patient-provider interaction is set up. And that's because that's not how the business model of healthcare works. So predominantly in the United States, we are in a fee-for-service environment, right? Our providers get paid by the number of interactions that they have with patients. And I realize that's not blanket 100% of provider models or provider interactions because we are amidst the shift to value-based care, but predominantly fee-for-service still reigns. And in that environment, when you are incentivized to perform more transactions, you will perform more transactions, which means visits with patients will be shorter. And in 15 minutes, I can't get to know Jared and all the progress he's seeking, all of his personal context so that I can really help him address any issues he may be facing about his underlying drivers of health. In 15 minutes, I am incentivized in the predominant fee-for-service business model to address the pressing issue that has brought you in front of me today. Now, this is not at all to say or to point blame in any direction. It's simply the predominant business model that is currently in place in healthcare. And when I say business model, the way we think about that is the institute at the Institute is a four box concept. So you have your value proposition, you have your resources, your processes, and your profit formula. And all of those interact to reinforce one another. So when the profit model incentivizes more transactions, then your processes, in this case, or in this example that I'm giving, your visit length, your patient provider interaction length is going to be shorter. So what I posited in the article was we really need new business models. That is, we need a different incentive structure, a different profit model that will incentivize different processes. And as a result, will enable a business model to deliver on a different value proposition to the individual. And it needs to be a value proposition that is grounded in the individual's job to be done or the progress that they're seeking in terms of their health and life outcomes. Because I would actually argue people don't want more health. That's not really why people wake up in the morning. Health is a means to an end. 
people seek more health because it gives them vitality. It gives them the ability to live their life in the way that they want to. I love this line of thought here. Are there spots that you're seeing, are there business models, I guess, that you're seeing that are closer to what you're describing, that are incentivized in a better way to lead us, to lead individuals to that place? Definitely. There are, I would say, many organizations across not just our country, but across the world who are grounding their business models in the jobs to be done of the consumer, but also importantly in healthcare, especially in the US and the customer, because the consumer, the person receiving or accessing the health or the care services are not always equivalent to the customer. That is the person who's paying for the health and the care services. So in part two of the blog post that you referenced, I write about a couple organizations who are really redesigning their business models in a way that allow them to operate under different incentives because they have a different profit formula and thus they're able to execute different processes and deliver a different value proposition. And while they use some of the same resources as the predominant fee-for-service business model in healthcare does, they also integrate new and different ones as well. And one organization that I highlight in that second article is Factor Health. And they have an intriguing approach for a number of reasons. But one thing I really find interesting about them is they've backed up their intervention outside of the clinic. So they're interventions that address drivers of health or social determinants of health are preclinical. So they aren't seeking to address somebody once they're already within the clinic walls or the hospital walls, but they're interfacing with individuals in the fabric of their lives. You're right. It's not just healthcare. We're not just waiting till people get sick anymore and then and then treat them with whatever they're they're showing at the moment. There are opportunities to go so far upstream well before that happens. And that's what I find fascinating about this is that when we're able to create business models that align to that fact, we're going to get to a better place as a society. What else are you hearing or researching or seeing in the industry regarding affordability and accessibility? Oh gosh, that's such a broad question. I think there are a couple different directions I could go, but one that I find increasingly interesting is the heightened emphasis that we're placing on mental and behavioral health care. And this has been needed and necessary, arguably for decades. And the pandemic has really put a spotlight on not only the growth in mental and behavioral health issues as a result of the pandemic, but also just the vastly underserved individuals who have a need that's not being addressed. And so, as I said, this isn't really new, but it's a tsunami that's really gaining speed and one that because of the pandemic, we can no longer ignore. And I was reading something from McKinsey the other day that was highlighting what an issue this is across all populations. And the CEO of Boston Children's Hospital had mentioned that during the pandemic, they were treating 50 to 70 children per day for mental or behavioral health issues, which was either doubling or tripling the amount that they had seen pre-pandemic. And it's not just kids. 25% of Gen Z respondents to a McKinsey consumer study said that they feel emotionally distressed and that that was apparently 
2x what Gen X and millennials reported. So this growing tsunami of either unserved or underserved demand for mental and behavioral health care is something we can no longer ignore. And something where I see a beacon of light is if you look at digital health funding over the past few years, it's grown massively. And mental health, digital health solutions continue to be one of the most highly funded sectors. And even earlier this month, Lyra Health, a leading digital health solution for mental health needs, just got $235 million more dollars to expand their platform. And what I find really promising about this is there's a lot of research that shows digital health, mental health solutions are just as efficacious as in-person solutions. When there is such a shortage of behavioral health providers, when it's often not a type of care that is covered by people's insurance, seeing innovators and potentially disruptive models enter to address the unmet need and provide an affordable solution, an affordable and accessible solution is exciting to me and something that I hope will continue to grow and continue to be a resource to people who so desperately need it and seek it. Oh, I agree. I'm seeing the same headlines, at least as far as funding goes for some of these digital health, behavioral health apps and services. And that's very encouraging to me. I likewise recognize the need for it in our society uh, more than ever. And I think this is just kind of the, the tip of the spear. Like I think we're just starting to see the recognition of it and a flurry of activity and potential solutions that hopefully will lead ultimately to uh, us as a society to a better place. So uh, thanks for sharing that. One more uh, place that I'd love to just get your opinion on uh, before we go here, which sure. is it's from another article, actually. I didn't see a date on it, but it was, I want to say it was at least a couple of years ago. There was a quote, you were talking about the need for disruptive innovation in healthcare again, but this was from the consumer's view. And there was a quote you were talking about how well-established health systems have an essential strategic choice to make. You were talking about how they need to make it rapidly. And that sense of urgency is what drew me into this article, among other things. One part you talked about was the tendency for incumbent health systems in particular to just kind of look at things like retail health and some of these new digital health entrants and big tech, all these new players that are, that have, you know, you know, quote unquote, new players, you know, some of them have been in healthcare for a number of years, but relatively they feel like new players because we're just hearing about them. And you're talking about this tendency of incumbent health systems, if I understood it correctly, to kind of say, sure, like, we'll just kind of let you have that low end of the market. We don't see much value to that anyway. But this kind of goes counter to, to Clayton Christensen's innovators dilemma, which is, where incumbents seed that lower end of the market to new entrants, but then in turn, that's who becomes disruptors and that has profound effects on the market. So first and foremost, do I understand that correctly? And second off, are you still seeing that in terms of like, that's what health systems are tending to do still right now? Yes. Great question. So yes, that was from a few years ago. I believe I wrote it back in 2018. So it was pre-pandemic. And yes, what I was saying was, health systems do have this essential strategic choice to make in that do they fall prey to the innovator's dilemma and seed the low end of the market to these potential disruptors fleeing up market. That's what Clay Christensen would predict. But what I was arguing was they should not do that. 
it was a critical juncture, in fact, not to seed the low end of the market to new entrants. And a core tenant of innovation is if you're the incumbent, it's essential to invest in potentially disruptive solutions when your core business is strong. If you wait to invest until your core business is in trouble, incentives won't be aligned for you to have the required patience to test and iterate innovations because you will put all this pressure on the innovation to succeed right away. And that's often uh, not what occurs. So it's interesting because as the pandemic unfolded, I wondered, did incumbent health systems miss the opportunity? Because margins were already tightening before the pandemic. And we know that the pressure of the pandemic put immense financial pressure on our healthcare system and on incumbent organizations. So the cash they may have had on hand to invest in innovation and potentially disruptive innovations before the pandemic, they may no longer be in that position now. So while it is no less essential now than it was before I do worry if it is even more or less likely that they will do that. I think it's kind of the question we're all looking to see how it plays out over the next 12 to 24 months. Ann Summers, it's been such a pleasure to have you join us today. Before we go, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? So there are a couple of ways. As you mentioned, we do share blogs. So they can find those at christiansoninstitute.org. You can also follow me on Twitter. <laughs> at Ann Summers, WH. And then also I would say perhaps the best way is to subscribe to our newsletter. So monthly, we send out a healthcare newsletter that highlights what we're writing and what we're reading. And listeners can subscribe to that on our website. Fantastic. Thanks again. Stay safe. And then best of luck with everything you're doing to help make healthcare consumer first. Thanks for giving us so much to think about today. Thanks so much, Jared. This was fun. Hey, thanks again for listening. We hope you found some value in this conversation. And if you did, do us a favor and follow us using your favorite podcast app. Then tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Healthcare App is a member of the Shift.Health Content Network. If you enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in the Shift.Health Content Network. Go check out the latest show. In fact, it's called Hello Healthcare, hosted by Chris Hemphill. It's focused on people who are moving healthcare forward, how healthcare strategy relates to data and AI, and what you can do to create or demand a better future. Subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or at shift.health, where all 35 podcasts and video series are free and available on demand. Until next time, keep marketing forward. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Thank you.